0: Welcome again. My name is Scott. Um, We're studying Galatians together. If you're newer here, we've been studying the book of Galatians. We're in uh, chapter 3 today. Um, Galatians is an incredibly important book in the New Testament, and it really helps anyone, whether you're new to Christianity or whether you've been walking with God for a long time, to understand in a deeper way, a more profound way, what the good news about Jesus Christ is. Um, at times, it can seem a little technical. Like a couple weeks ago, we were going in great detail about the, the issue of justification by faith, and what that means, and what that does not mean. And today, we're going to be looking at the role of God's law in the life of a Christian. So like the Ten Commandments, and that kind of thing. Like, how does that relate to us today? And I just want to say, you know, we all have different learning styles, right? We all have different uh, different ways in which we process information some of you are engineer and accounting types and you're you're gonna love this man You're gonna love the details and the intricacies you probably like studying uh, Doctrine and theology and that kind of thing if you're if you're a uh, kind of a deeper Christian, or, you know, you want to know how stuff works. Some of you aren't as wired that way, and so you might need to know, like, well, why is this matter? Why is this so important? And let me tell you, no matter who you are, the reason why this is important is at the end of the day, every one of us, no matter what your personality is or your background, we all struggle with shame. We all struggle with this sense of uh, brokenness and sin, and at times, we don't know where to go with that. And I think every one of us, if you follow Jesus, wonder, is the gospel really that good? Is the, can the gospel actually be as good as Tyson says it is when he gets up here every Sunday? And says, on the cross, you know, Jesus takes our junk, as Tyson says. Jesus is taking our sin, and then in exchange, we get his righteousness. Can it really be that good? And as we unpack this today, and, then, and you have these nagging questions in your mind, yeah, but I remember the Old Testament, right? And there's a lot of law in there. There's a lot of rules and regulations and so forth. Where does that, where does that all fit in? And so today, even though we're going to get technical, we're going to get down to the details, you need this for your heart because it's not just your mind, it's for your heart because all of us battle wondering, is it really that good? Is it really that wonderful that God could forgive me, love me, give me his righteousness. We're going to look at Galatians three fifteen through 25 today. If you've got a Bible, turn there. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you a gift of one. There's one, uh, several out there on a shelf out there under the sign that says information. We also have another gift for you. It's a, a book of, in the Psalms, a devotional book. If you're new here, grab one of those. And if you don't, if you don't have a Bible, don't worry about it because it's in your bulletin and it's up here as well. But I've, I kind of encourage you to follow along and Open it up, look at it, read it, study it. The Apostle Paul writes this, To give a human example, brothers, we can say sisters too, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say in two offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, the righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Thanks be to God, and this is the word of the Lord. As we've been studying Galatians, Paul has one overarching point, and it's it's this. Do not add anything to the gospel. He says the gospel, and that phrase gospel literally means good news, equals Jesus plus absolutely nothing else. Not even something as good as God's law, and it is God's law. Don't add anything. Don't add anything at all, and, and that is what these people have been struggling with. They have been listening to teachers and leaders who, after Paul established the churches in the region of Galatia, these false teachers came in later and started saying, it's good to follow Jesus, it's good to have faith in Jesus, but if you really want to honor God and be saved, you need to add to faith in Him the works of the law. Paul comes along and says, don't add anything. Don't add anything at all. There are certain things in life that are so good, and this is absolutely the supreme one, where you should add nothing. Another one is steak. <laughs> my, my stepdad, his name is Bill Agnew, but to our family, he's Pap. And Pap is a man's man. He became my stepdad when I was 11. He is uh, he's a guy who's always been fit, always been in shape, did really well in business. Uh, He looks like Paul Newman. I mean, the guy's got stuff going. He's now in his 80s. He's 85. He will get down on the floor and help me tear apart my refrigerator. I mean, this guy is for real, and he also loves God a lot, and he's taught me a lot about life. But when I was 11, he was dating my mom, and then they got married early. I remember him telling this story about how he broke up with a woman, because he took her to this really good steakhouse. And she had the audacity to put ketchup on a steak. And that was enough. That was, you know, it didn't matter if she was attractive or she was godly or had good care. That was, that was enough. You don't, you do not put ketchup on a good steak. <laughs> and he's telling this story, and I can remember. We're driving around in his car, and I can remember this story. I remember saying to myself, do not ever around this man, right, put <laughs> put ketchup on a steak and now that i'm a grown man i say to you yeah don't don't do that like that you don't add to something that good the gospel friends it's that good it stands alone jesus what he's done for you in his life his death his resurrection there's nothing to add to something that good and that beautiful paul has taught if you've been tracking along that were saved, that were redeemed, that were forgiven, and that were justified by faith in Jesus and nothing else at all. And as you read this letter, the inevitable question you will raise if you are thinking is but what about the law? Especially for somebody like Paul and these other folks who were. Jewish, and, and uh, he's writing primarily to a, uh, the Galatians, of course, who are a Gentile audience, but he himself, being raised in Judaism, is, is asking him, yeah, but what about the law? What was God's point in giving the law, and what should my relationship to God's law be right now as a follower of Jesus Christ? And the main point that I want us to see this morning is this. The overarching thing is this. The law was never meant to save us. It never was. Never. Hear me. It never was. But it's meant to show us our sin, to lead us to repentance, and to teach us how to love our God, how to joyfully, with gratitude, live for Him, follow Him, and demonstrate our love to Him. But I'm going to try to convince you today. I hope the scriptures do. The law was never meant as a means of salvation. Three points. Under this main idea is this, what came first, law or gospel? That's following Paul's logic. Second, what is the purpose of the law? And third, what is our relationship to the law right now? First, what came first, law or gospel? One of my most favorite things as a pastor is explaining to people how the Old and the New Testament fit. And, and I was so confused about this for a long time, and I remember studying the Old Testament. I remember being in seminary and still being utterly confused. Like, how do these two books, you know, they're made up of several books, but how, does, how do the Old Covenant and the New Covenant fit? How, how do they work together? It doesn't seem to make sense. And many of us, when you read the Old Testament, your big takeaway is that God is holy, right? He's angry about sin, and He seems really serious about this law stuff if you're honest, like, that seems to be the main takeaway, and you kind of wonder, where's the grace? Where's the love? And it's clearly there. As you look deeper, it's there, but so is the law, and so is God's holiness, and so forth. But then in the New Testament, as Jesus Christ comes incarnated, He is literally God in the flesh, your big takeaway is what? Is it law, or is it grace and love? Now it's, it's grace and love and the person of God and Jesus Christ and, and he's blowing away stereotypes and he's reinterpreting to people like what all this means and it's hard to know how does this fit? Paul teaches us now today so beautifully how unified the Bible is and that the message of salvation, believe it or not, hear me, the message of salvation in the Old Testament and the New Testament has always been by grace through faith alone, by grace in God through faith alone. Let's go back over verses 15 through 18, what we just read. I'm going to reread to us and unpack it. So Paul says, hey, let me give you a human example. Even in man-made covenants or contracts, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified and completed, signed on the dotted line. Now, the promises were made to Abraham. He's going back. To back to Abe, alright? The very first follower of God and the people of Israel. He is the the father of the Jewish people. The father of the promise. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, and it it doesn't say offsprings, he says, referring to many, but referring to one and then he points and says, who is Christ, in verse 16. And this is what I mean, Paul says, the law came 430 years after Abraham. And if you're not fully tracking with the story, don't worry, we're going to talk about it. The law came later, after Abraham, 430 years later, and it does not put away, annul the covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. If the inheritance comes by law, it's no longer promised, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Let me give you an example, he says. A human contract. And, and what he's talking about here is a a will and testament, right? He's talking about a will and testament. And in Roman law, as in our day-to-day, you could change your will by making a new one or adding a codicil. Like, I mean, you can change a, your will. You know, if you write a will and, and you change your mind and say, no, I want to give him less money or her more money or whatever, you can do that, but you have to you have to have a... Uh, you have to have to start over with the will, or you, you need to do a codicil. So Paul may have been referring to Greek law at that time, which was a little more unbending, and once it was ratified, it was nearly impossible to alter. So that's maybe what he meant, uh, but honestly, we don't know exactly. But regardless, his point is this. If you can't change a human contract easily how much more so can you not change a promise that doesn't come from a human being but from god god begins with a promise to a particular man named abraham and it's not just a you know like yeah a small promise it is built and established in a covenant of grace And here is where Paul is headed with this. God began with a promise to Abraham and a covenant that was utterly and completely established in grace through faith alone, okay? I'll show you why in just a minute. But the law came, the Old Testament law came 430 years later. So we start, believe it or not, in the Old Testament, with a man is made right with God by grace through faith alone and nothing else. Then later the law comes. And then in Jesus we know, again, that salvation is by grace through faith alone. Let's go to Genesis 15, verses 3 through 6. Let me give you a little bit of background, first of all. God calls this man named Abraham to himself. He says, leave your family, leave your home, leave your own people, even your parents, right? Right? And he leaves his security in life and he goes and he follows God to a place that will be determined later. And God has told him, I'm going to make you a great nation. But they had no kids. And he and Sarah were getting older. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. And through you, I promise to bless every nation in the world. Now, that's a promise. That's a huge promise. You don't have any children, you're older. But I'm going to build a nation through you, and one of your offspring is going to be a promise and a gift in such a way that the entire world will be blessed. Abraham believed God and followed him, but it was tough because they remained childless, and they became older and older and older. In verse 3 through 6 of chapter 15 of Genesis, okay, so for the very first book of the Bible, it says this, And Abram, who later's name was changed to Abraham, said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. I'm sitting here under this promise, and I've been waiting, and I still don't have a son. Behold, you've given me an offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven, number the stars, if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he, God, counted it as what? Righteousness. And Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. By what? Works of the law? There were none. God's just getting started <laughs> with this people. There are no laws yet. Have you noticed that when you, when you read about Abraham in and, and Genesis 12 through, through the whole big section, it, it never he doesn't come along and say, Hey, I've got these five things you got to do, or these ten things. He just says, follow me. Pick up your stuff and follow me. Abraham does. He believes God. And it says, it, he credited to him that faith equaling righteousness. Friends, that is the doctrine of justification by faith that we were talking about two weeks ago. That literally is what it is. So, start, track with me here. The very first Israelite, is a man named Abraham. He is made right with God, counted as righteous, not by works, not by law, not because he's especially good. In fact, as you read his story, he's a goober. He does horrible things. He's conniving. He's sinful. He's fearful. He doesn't protect his wife when he should. He puts her in great danger. She also is conniving and not that great of a person. And God says, through these people, (laughs) not the Superman of Christian spirituality, just an average kind of goober person like you and me, I reckon your faith is righteousness. I count it as righteousness. I credit it as righteousness. So you tracking with me? First Jew saved, not by law, by grace. And what Paul is saying is, We start with this inheritance all built on a promise, not law, not law, promise. That there will be an inheritance of offspring, so many you can't count them, the stars in the sky, that's all based on a promise of grace through faith alone. Now, of course, the law came when? 430 years later. 430 years later. Now, there's more about Abraham I want to tell you about. Um, <laughs> right after this promise and this declaration, and this is something very frustrating about Abraham, right? Like, he believes, but he doesn't believe. Who does that sound like? You. <laughs> he believes, yet he doesn't believe. Right after God, in the like through his spirit, is speaking to him and gives him this promise in chapter 15... He says to God, but how will I know? How can I possibly know that what you're telling me is true? Well, because he's God, right? And he's talking to you. But it's not enough for Abraham. So God tells Abraham, listen, I want you to do something. Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old ram, a three-year-old goat, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. And to us, that sounds what? Crazy. How will I know? You need... I need a promise. I need a covenant. And and God says, bring me a a cow, a big one, a heifer, you know, a ram, a goat, and a couple birds. Now, to us, that sounds nuts. To him, it made perfect sense to Abraham. Why? Because in the ancient Near East, this is how you made a promise to somebody else. You made a covenant, and the word covenant literally means to cut. You cut a covenant, and this is gonna be gross, but it's powerful. He brings God, okay, these animals, a cow, a heifer, a goat, a ram, and these two birds. And what they did in the ancient Near East, if I said, hey, I want to buy some land from you, but I don't have all the money, I'm going to pay you back later. I'm going to establish in a covenant a contract. I'll pay you back. We'd get a cow, ram, etc. We'd cut it in half. Disgusting, I know. We cut all the animals in half, in fact, and created an isle with half of the body on this side, half on this side, and created this nasty, bloody aisle. And I would walk through that aisle, and I'd get to the other side, and I'd turn and point to the other person and say, if I don't pay you back what I owe you, may this happen to me. And then both parties in in these ancient Near East contracts would walk through the aisle, point to the blood, and say, if I don't uphold my part and give you the land, provide the land, whatever, may this happen to me. Now, when God says, go get these animals, he then causes Abraham to have this vision where he sees a torch, if you remember in Genesis, and the torch passes through these divided animals down this aisle, but Abraham does not pass through. And what all commentators agree upon is this. What Abraham is being told by God is this. Abraham, you want to know <laughs> how you can know that what I'm telling you is true? Because he's pushing ninety-something years old at this age and has no son. You want to know How you can know? Because if I fail to complete what I've promised you, may this happen to me. We're talking about the God of the universe who created all things out of nothing by his powerful word. He says that, and then he doesn't have Abraham pass through the aisle. And so in essence, do you know what God is saying to Abraham? Abraham. If I don't fulfill my covenant promises to you, may this happen to me. But even more so what God is telling Abraham, if you, Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and all the people that come after you, if you don't fulfill your covenant promises, may this happen to me also. God is saying, may it fall on me. The curse will fall on me in either direction. If I don't fulfill, it falls on me. If you don't fulfill It falls on me. God made a promise to Abraham that was established in grace alone. Abraham brought nothing to the table except faith. God did it all. And hallelujah for that. So the big takeaway, guys, is this. The gospel of grace has always been God's idea. From the very beginning, as soon as humankind fell in the garden through Adam and Eve, it has been all about God redeeming a people by grace. The law could never, ever save. It's never meant to. Israel was never saved through the law-keeping. No one could be saved through law-keeping. The second point then, what was the purpose of the law? The law shows us our sin and leads us to repentance. Galatians 3.19 Why then the law, Paul asks? It was added because of transgressions. That's just another word for sin. Until the offspring, Jesus, should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place, the law was, through angels by an intermediary. Paul says that the law was added because of transgressions until Christ came. Tim Keller writes in Galatians for You, which is a commentary we've been following in this this, uh, series. He says this, the law did not come to tell us about salvation, but about sin. And its main purpose is to show us our problem that we're lawbreakers and to prove to us that we cannot be the solution since we're unable to be perfect law keepers the law was given later to a people to abraham's people if you remember abraham was the father of isaac and isaac was the father of jacob whose name is changed later to israel and jacob has 12 sons and one of them is joseph and then he gets thrown into slavery and while they're in egypt they forget about Joseph, and they forget their kindness to him and the relationship they have with Joseph. And they said, look at all these people who are getting really strong. This is a good labor force. And they enslaved the people of God. And then God rescued them out of slavery, not because they were particularly good or sinless, but because of his grace. And he brings them out through the blood of a lamb in his own powerful hand. And they walk through dry land to the sea by grace. And then when they get Out into the desert God gives them the law 430 years later why though Paul says it's in order to instruct them that they have sin in their life and lead them to repentance and faith to show them how much they need God why is the law in your life and the law is even if you're very irreligious it's true God's law is written on our hearts even if you barely believe in God, God's law is written on your heart and you feel, you feel the brokenness. You feel the sin. You recognize that you have done things you should not have done and there's things that you should have done that you have not done. The the law of God acts like a mirror because it gives us self-awareness of who we are. The law of God as we study it and and read it and, and peer into it i'm talking primarily about the 10 commandments right now which are summarized by love god with all of your heart and love your neighbors yourself i mean the more you study that the more you realize oh man i'm in trouble i covet <laughs> i may not have commit murder but i have anger right as you peer into the law and really study it it acts like a mirror, and a mirror is helpful, right? And we all spend a lot of time in front of mirrors looking. And as much as I want to sit here and, and imagine that I have long, thick, luxurious hair, right? And I have these ongoing dreams, you guys. Like, it's crazy, but I have this repeated dream I have about once a year where I, I look in a mirror, <laughs> and I have all this hair. I mean, it's like a ton of hair, and I'm like, why have I been shaving my head all these years? I I have thick, luxurious hair. Like, wha- what have I been doing? And then I wake up, and I look in the real mirror, not the mirror of my dreams, right? And the reality is this, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which I'm really cool with, believe it or not. But, you know, the mirror shows me the reality. The other day, I was in Pasadena for some meetings, and I I stayed in this hotel that had one of those, uh, you know, mirrors. They're kind of smaller than a normal mirror, and you can move it around, but it's this magnifying glass for your face. I guess it's to put makeup on. I wouldn't know about that. So, like, I I got my face. I'm all alone. I'm, I get down in the mirror, but and it's, like, reality, right? <laughs> like, people tell me I look younger than my age, but, like, trust me, you get down in that magnifying glass, it's like, oh, yeah, I look 30. So... <laughs> That's what the law of God does. I really think I'm a really good person. I really think I could probably earn salvation if I needed to, and then all of a sudden you look down into the mirror and it magnifies everything and shows you the reality. No, my heart is broken. No, I live for myself. No, I've been spending my whole life trying to be God rather than serve God, right? I want to make life all about me. Self-awareness is critical, and that's what the law does. It shows you you need Him. You need God. John Calvin in Calvin's Institutes says this. You might be surprised if you have certain conclusions about him. Without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. That's a summary of basically what he says in chapter 1 of his Institutes. Without a knowledge of yourself, you'll never understand God. And then he flips it and says, but without a knowledge of God, there's no knowledge of self. They work together. You need to understand the Lord to understand yourself more, but you really won't understand the Lord until you have a good and proper understanding of yourself. And so as I look into the law, it will show me the state of my heart. Commandment one, no other gods. Commandment two, don't make any idols in the form of anything. But then I look into my heart and I go, but I lust and I covet and I have anger. And all of this is me trying to establish that I am good that I have my own saying, you know, like, hey, I'm going to make the rules around here. God has said this about sex, this about power, this about money, this about possessions. I say, I don't want any of that. I'm going to do what I want to do right now. (coughs) Setting myself up as God. And the law of God, and hear me, this was the purpose of the law, to lead Israel to a condition of their heart that when the Messiah came, they would repent. This is the purpose of the law for you. So that before you're a follower of Jesus, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, that you would see, I've been trying to be moral from the inside, but I see that actually I live for myself. I've not lived for God. It's meant to drive you to your knees and to cry out, I need your mercy because I have not kept your law. This is why we confess our sins, right? Every week. Because we need him. We need to be reminded of how much we need him. John Stott, another great theologian, says this in his book on Galatians. After God gave the promise to Abraham, he gave the law to Moses. Again, 430 years later. And it did not, it did not change the previous covenant or promise that was created. Why did he give it? He had to make things worse before he could make it better. The law exposed sin. It provoked sin. It condemned sin. The, person of the, or the purpose of the law was to lift the lid off man's respectability and disclose what he and she really is underneath. Sinful, rebellious, guilty, and helpless to save himself. That sounds so negative but it's what we need. We need a good diagnosis of the human condition. We need God. We're helpless without Him. The law was a guide, Paul says, a a guard to show us that you need Him. You can't keep it. Finally, what is my relationship to the law now? If you're a follower of Jesus, where do you stand with the law? The law teaches us how to love our Savior, friends. Believe it or not, it does. Jesus said in John 14, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. The law, re, the relationship to the law, if you follow Jesus changes before there's a sense in which the law is condemning you showing you you need christ repent believe hope trust in jesus but as soon as you believe and trust in him the law can no longer condemn you we feel the condemnation but there's no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus paul says in romans so there is no longer condemnation and now the law comes along and can be your friend and your guide in what way This way, (coughs) it's as if God is saying, this is how you can love me. You want to love me? Love your neighbor as yourself. When you see someone in need, you need to say to yourself, that's Jesus right there. If any of you visits anyone in prison and gives them a cold drink, you have done it in my name. When we see the hurt, the lost, the lonely, the broken, the widow, the orphan, Uh, the person who's marginalized, just even your friend and neighbor next door, and we say, I will love you in Jesus' name, and I'm going to seek your good as I seek my own good in life. You are honoring your Father in heaven and Jesus Christ, His Son, through the Holy Spirit. You are loving Him in light of gratitude for what God has done for you in Jesus. So the law no longer condemns you, and God is showing us through the law, here is how you can love me. Becky and I have a great marriage, and we're about to celebrate 25 years of marriage. So I'm clearly not 30 years old. <laughs> and after 25 years, it's funny, like, we really only have a couple issues that we argue about, it's just we recycle them, right? I mean, it's just the same stuff over and over and over, refreshed. It, we might as well go, hey, we talked about that two weeks ago. <laughs> like, there's no reason to, bring, well, no, that's probably not good, but... Uh, and over the years, as if I'm being clear-headed and reflecting on reality, the truth is she has granted me so much grace in our marriage. And it's, it's sad to me to recount the number of times I have been unloving, that I have been impatient, that if I have said an unkind word, that I've been sarcastic, and I've not done what I ought to have done for my wife. And over the 25 years, if I had to say one word to describe those 25 years, it would be grace, truly, from Becky. Grace, love, forgiveness, understanding. Praise God. And in light of that grace, I can't help but want to love her more, right? And if I'm really going to love her as a good husband, I'm not going to love her the way I think that should be defined. I need to know what she determines as love. What is her love language? How does she receive love? How does she hear love? Love. Well, she likes me to listen to her. <laughs> Men, women are mysterious, right? I mean, they want to talk, right? They want to listen. Take notes, brothers. <laughs> take notes. All kidding aside, yeah. She wants to talk. She wants me to listen. She she likes me to lead the family and be with the family, right? To take initiative. She likes dark chocolate. (laughs) She likes girly drinks. She likes it when I take care of the car and the yard and the money and that kind of thing and just sort of the financial details of the household. And she feels loved by that. Not everyone's the same, okay? So not just talking about all men have these roles, all women, we're all different. But that's how she feels love. That's her love language. So what I'm getting at is this. Look, if you follow Jesus and you're his son or your daughter, his daughter, you can no longer be condemned by the law and God is now saying but if you love me keep my commandments and when you break them know this you're covered in grace but if you love me keep my commandments so we can never say to God's commandments who cares about loving God and loving my neighbor no instead we say in light of how much good and blessing God has given me I will now live my life in gratitude to my heavenly father and my savior and this is what love looks like to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbors yourself. That's how we show our Heavenly Father that we love Him. No longer condemned. No longer condemned. Free now out of gratitude to go live for Him. Covered in grace when we don't. No longer condemned, but called to show God our love in response and gratitude. Let's pray.